North Texas District Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast from and for those of us serving Jesus with the North Texas District of the Assemblies of God. I am Lennon, your host today, alongside my colleague and church planting and church development specialist, Mike the Man Harper. Hey, hey, thank you. Pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for being on your show, man. Yeah. So we've got a good we've got a good episode today. We're focusing on um, something that I think everyone listening would be interested in, and that is breaking growth barriers. And so Mike has a um, what would you call it a cohort? Yeah, we program? call it a cohort. Yeah, uh, breaking the two hundred barrier cohort. We actually have a two hundred, a five hundred, and a thousand barrier cohort. Those are the the classical cohorts that Church Health talks about. Yeah, and so um, with this breaking the two hundred barrier cohort, one of the things I love about you is you have a mind for statistics. You know how many of us need it, really. So within our district, paint a picture of churches. How many might be at this barrier? Right. How many might need the content we're giving yeah. today, which is focusing on the 200, 200 barrier. barrier? Yeah, approximately right now, 650 churches is kind of where we are today. On any given week, we have about 150,000 um, attenders who would be in our churches. Those would be spread out over the vast majority of those would be under churches of 200. In fact, out of our 650 churches, we have 80 churches approximately that are above 250. 80 out of 650. 80 out of 650. Okay. The vast majority of those obviously are below 250. Our median-sized church, uh, so if you line the smallest church up all the way to our largest, came halfway down that line, the median number is 63. Okay. So we really do have a need for these type of topics, these kinds of focuses on the barriers that keep us from advancing the mission of Christ to the next level. So you have in cohort, you focus on 20 barriers. And so Correct. we're not going to hit on all 20 today, but at the end of our talk, what we will do is you'll tell them if they want to get involved with this or look into it, who to connect right. with, how yep. to do that. And so um, let's begin working on, I think we picked seven of them Correct. that we're going to tackle. And so if you're a missionary or a pastor, you know what it is to run into a barrier and to maybe ebb and flow over the same one. I think it can be pretty common, can it, Mike, that maybe you have an Easter right. Sunday or something like that yeah. and you think, we have made it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a barrier. We we had 223. Right. And then next week you're back at 177. Yeah, those are those are killer days. You know, <laughs> we find ourselves right now in the middle of summer. So I, in my conversations I'm having with pastors are like, Oh, if I just make it through the summer, yes. uh, we'll, we'll do fine. But this issue of the, of the barriers, they're, first of all, they're predictable because it really does address more structural issues that change. Just much as like a family. Uh, for example, uh, you've got three kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got two. When it was just my wife and I, we could do anything spur of the moment. We could just really just kind of on a lark go do something. But as our family grew Things, the complexity of the relationships mm-hmm. and the structure of the relationships changed. And so when you're looking at churches, a church of, a, of less than 100 or 150 people really has kind of a family dynamic to it. Right. So it's just ma and pa. We're really relational. We do dinners together. It's, it's very relational. A church of 250 and above uh, to 500, it really is much more like a family reunion. Mm-hmm. We're all connected to each other. Right. But... But I may not know your name and every person in your family's name. And then once you get above that 500 barrier, it really begins to have much more of a kind of a corporate feel. Uh, we're in this on toward a mission together. So those family dynamics begin to fade away. So for breaking that 200 barrier, most of those barriers deal with this family issue, right. how you, how we are going to 
handle each other, care for one another, uh, make decisions together mm-hmm. uh, to help us move to that next level. So it's very predictable. So that's so it's predictable, and you, you're going to show us that it's structural, and that by default means that the answer is not necessarily one big day. Correct. And yeah. so if we're not structured for it, the encouraging thing is if if we look at this stuff and we admit to ourselves, okay, I am not structured to break 200. Right. right. Uh, that means we can structure. We can do it yeah. to break 200. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's work through some of these, Mike. I'm just gonna I'm gonna mention the one you right. gave us, and mm-hmm. then you'll unpack it for us. Sure. So the first one that you gave me was a lack of scalable care. And this immediately makes me think of what you said, the whole not knowing everybody as well anymore. That idea of the pastor being all things to everybody gets out of hand pretty quick. Really does. And meeting the need. When you realize that probably most of the churches that we would be talking about of under 200, that 63 and below, their pastor very good likelihood is bivocational. So they are working a full-time job, 40, 50 hours. Then on top of that, preparing sermons, uh, putting all things together, doing all the things that need to be done to pull off a good Sunday morning service, Wednesday night service, Sunday evening service for many of these uh, congregations. So the idea of by the time that he takes care of his financial responsibilities, working a full-time job, doing his spiritual responsibilities, sermon preparation, which, boy, depending on who you are, can take 10 hours, 10 hours, 15, 20 hours sometimes. I'm not one that just whips that out. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm slow at it. So by the time you do that, and then they're a loving, caring father. I mean, our bivocational pastors are the unsung heroes of our fellowship. Yes. So the idea of having to go to the hospital uh, when Sister Smith is sick, uh, having to do a funeral, uh, doing any kind of pastoral counseling, the care component of keeping the family together, unified, loving one another, uh, meeting each other's needs is a huge component. And real quick, a pastor of 65, 75 people who's working a full-time job, trying to sustain a family, trying to maintain a church, the issue that he comes into is time. And it really, the eating up of that time is caring for the flock. So if we were in the cohort, you would spend significant time really addressing the what to do of this. Um, Hit on a little bit of what of what you would encourage this pastor to do yeah. if he is right there at sixty seven people and he is he is doing what he or she can do right. Um, what would you begin to teach or encourage them on to begin to address a lack of scalable care? Well, I think for the first issue is, is really in helping the congregation understand that you can actually receive care from anyone. Right. But it just doesn't have to be from me. It doesn't have to be sacerdotal. I don't have to have the you know the King James Bible that, that I've been trained in to come into the hospital and, and meet your need. That really anyone who comes in the name of the Lord can pray for you, can anoint you with oil. And it's really empowering the lay leadership. It is, the Lord has given them gifts. Exactly right, yeah. And their prayer can be just as effective as my prayer right. and meeting the need. So really uh, scale, the issue in that word is scaling it. Being able to identify lay leaders uh, who have those gifts and propensities. Truthfully, uh, there are a lot of ministers that don't have high care gifts. Right, right. You know, yeah, that's, I, I that's may be truth. one of those. I may be one of those, <laughs> truthfully. I mean, real candidly. Uh, but, but it still had to be done. But whenever I was able to train someone to go with me, walk through me, let, let me show you how to do a hospital visit. I've just multiplied myself and enabled me to now care for twice as many people. 
and I want to say here, you've you've planted a couple of churches. Yep, yep. You had to do this. No, absolutely. I, I framed houses in Phoenix, right. Arizona. Right. So <laughs> by the time you're done framing houses and you got to the hospital, uh, really quickly the care component really begins to be the first limiter. Yes. That you begin to see because people's needs are there. And meeting people's need is never uh what would be the word I would say? It's never convenient. Right. It's never convenient. Yeah, they don't they don't they don't call you because things are going good, exactly. but when you can come by, maybe you can. Yeah, exactly. Everything's right. urgent, everything's you know, gotta happen right now. So being able to scale, multiply yourself. And there are really people in our congregations who are loving, who have the gift of care. They know everyone's birthday already. Mm-hmm. You know, and so when we think of care, often we think of pastoral care. But one of the things about scaling is there's other ways of caring for people. Like, mm-hmm. for example, one of the methods that we teach is who do I care for? So I care for key members on my team, and they care for me. So a care touch would be a key phrase. A touch of care might be a phone call that says, hey, Mike. Just thinking about you, praying for you. I've got one of our team members. His name is Kalen Brassfield. Kalen, uh, pastors, Kalen. yeah, pa- pastors a great church, Elevate Church, and Kalen's uh, one of the people who provides care for me. Now, about once a month or so, I'll get a text message about five thirty in the morning from Kalen going, "I'm up. I'm praying for you. Want to let you know I love you, and I'm I'm taking your name to the throne. Is there anything I can do for you?" And the first time right. he sent me one at five thirty, I said, "Please care for me at seven thirty. You know, you know. <laughs> That's when I'm thinking more clearly. exactly. But it's the issue that it was a touch, and so yeah. I think often when we think scalable care, we automatically default to pastoral care, hospitals, and those things. But there's a lot of touches mm-hmm. that provide care that keep the congregation happy content, their needs are being met, that can be done by other people, as well as training other people to help us with the pastoral care responsibilities. Right. Okay. So lack of scalable care. Um, Huge. If we were in the seminar, you'd, you'd go on yeah. about that for longer. You know, and it, one of the reasons is that because most of our pastors were called into ministry because of that pastoral heart that we right. have. And so the idea of delegating that out to someone else is very difficult because most pastoral leaders have very strong pastor. Our, our superintendent has incredible he pastoral does. gifts. He does. And so touching people, praying for them, meeting their needs, it's just natural. So delegating that out is a difficult thing. So most of the scalable care, the problem is typically not always the congregation, but it's often the leader <laughs> yeah. letting go of that. <laughs> yes. Okay. So lack of scalable care. Yes. The second one of the 20, but again, we're only hitting on seven today, that, that you want us to talk about is the sense of inward vision. Yeah. The, the idea is this, that we have all been called to be a part of the mission of Christ. This isn't our mission. It's his mission. And often what happens in a local church is they get so involved with meeting the needs of the people inside of their church that over a period of time, uh, by default, it just kind of turns inward. It's about us. It's about our congregation. It's about our children. It's about our youth ministry. Our is the the moniker on top of everything. Right. The, The larger picture is this, that you can actually meet human need. And never actually fulfill the mission of Christ. Absolutely. So at some point in time, you've got to make a conscious decision of, if I meet the mission of Christ, if I do my fiduciary to fulfill the mission of Christ in my local context, I will always meet human need. 
Right. But I may get off course by meeting human need and not fulfill the mission of Christ in that context. So most of the churches that we work with that have kind of plateaued over a season of time, it's not that they're not doing ministry. In fact, our smaller churches actually have more ministries ongoing than most of our larger churches right. because they've become so focused on meeting the human need. So we have something for every slice of the congregational family, specialized men's, women's. You know, churches of 50, 60, 70 people will have 14, 15, 16 ministries. I work with some of the largest churches right. in America. They'll have seven. Right. So they've really focused in and kind of got sucked into this idea of for us to grow, we have to have a buffet of ministries that meets everybody's needs. So we get so focused on meeting people's needs that we inadvertently miss out on fulfilling the mission of Christ. So when you talk about losing that sense of mission and meeting needs, that the ugly word that ends up being there is is selfishness. Yeah. That, not that anybody starts out that no. way, Mm-mm. but we lose our capacity to look outward whenever we are structuring something solely to meet the needs of insiders. Yeah. So something obvious here that is um, that was pointed out to me for the first time. I, I had read it a million times. Right. I just finally had a preacher say it yeah. in a certain way was uh, Eli Gotro, who, of course, um, is our Chi Alpha director, does a fantastic job with that. But he was the first one to pause and really point out that whenever Jesus said, follow me, I will make you fishers of men, he just pointed out that point. He said, hey, the mission was inherent within the call. Yes, absolutely. So when someone comes to know Jesus, they are meant to embrace the Correct. mission along the way. And so whenever you've seen a church begin to sort of overcome this lack of inward vision and a pastor um, or a pastor's leadership team or whatever successfully get the congregation who maybe is focused inward to look outward, what types of things have they done? First of all, I don't think they recognize it. There's always this epiphany, like this aha moment. Like in, me, whenever yeah, that was exactly, preached. exactly right. It does happen. And that that is a precursor for the behavioral change. Without that aha moment, that's just not going to happen. But what we see is what we do is, first of all, in our cohorts, not only we do do we train the pastor, but we invite the pastor to bring key leaders inside the congregation with them. That's great. So it's not just the pastor having that aha moment, but it's everyone in that key leadership role of going, oh, I didn't realize we had done that. But when you start telling me and we start identifying all the things that we've done, we realize we're really about meeting our own needs and not about connecting with the mission of Christ and how we can fulfill it in our community. So what you begin to see is just this attitudinal change first. Mm-hmm. Uh, suddenly they begin looking at calendar. They begin looking at the way they spend their money. They begin looking at all kinds of things. They start evaluating the internal ministries. If we only have so many man hours a week, if we only have so much money, if we only have so many days in the year, is it best for us to spend those energies there? And do we stop doing this so now we can begin focusing over here? Right. You begin to see a shift in the calendar. And it, like I just said in the way they spend their money, in the way they calendar their events, and even their preaching uh, begins to change. So it's, right. it's really – it's transformational for the congregation. Somebody who I really respect, a pastor in Plano, Texas, by the name of Gerald Brooks. Right. He always says that a pastor has to be the advocate for the lost because they will not show up in your board meetings and say, hey, be sure – and think about us this week with the decisions you're talking about in the areas of yeah. resource, time, yeah. et cetera. It's a, it's a big one. And, and, in, and it's sad 
that we have to bring this up when we are a Pentecostal fellowship. Sure. You know, it'd be one thing if we weren't, you know, the Acts 2 empowered to be a witness. Right. Um, we have become empowered to, to speak in tongues, and, it, and it's a personal empowerment right. Right. rather than this missional empowerment. And I think that's really – you begin to see that in the, in the messages and in the prayer times of the people, not, Lord, what can you do for us, but what can we do for others? That's great. So lack of scalable care inward sense of vision. And number three, we're going to talk about just a lack of strategy. Yeah. Just, I have the heart, but how do I do this? Yeah, I think it's a strategy. Uh, if I can be real candid, I uh, when I planted my first churches, uh, I'm an intuitive leader. And so I had strategies, but I didn't realize my strategies were kind of a Frankenstein model. Mm-hmm. I took a little from this, a little from that, a little from everything else, uh, which were all from mega churches. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. and so the ability to scale it down to my size was virtually impossible. So I was spending all this energy trying to scale up to where right. they were. I think the most important strategy component that we can help our pastors recognize uh, is it Dave Ramsey, the financial guy who says, "Act your wage." Yes, you know, yes. Which, in other words, understand who you are. Stay within the realm of that financial world that you're in and live there. I think for us, one of the best strategies we can help churches recognize is act your age, act your size. Mm -hmm. If you're a 50-people church, celebrate that. There are certain things you can do that are absolutely strengths that get lost uh, at a church of 150, 300, 500, whatever those those numbers may be. So let's be strategic and not try to reach beyond what we can do. In fact, it's really liberating. When I go, I'm 75. I can actually be a healthy church of 75 people. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that I'm unhealthy because I have 70, have 75 people. It just means that I've scaled my everything to to meet the need of 75 people. So, first of all, recognizing what it takes to lead at church of 50 or 75, and then begin learning what it looks like to lead at that next level. So, if I can use the language of um, Present reality. Yes. Let's let's come back and say this is who we are. We have limited resources. We have limited people. We have limited time. Uh, our facility. We 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 only have certain amount of things. How do we now leverage those things rather than saying, well, we don't have that. We don't have the digital LED wall. We don't have uh, lights. We don't have a we don't have a digital sign out on the on the corner of the street pointing toward our church. But we do have this. Now, how right. can we be strategic with what we have? So it really comes back to the parable of the stewards. Is it Matthew 25? I think it's 14 through 31. The, the master gave each steward a particular n- amount of giftings. They were all given the same amount. They all had the same job description. But two of them actually did something with it. The third one didn't. Mm-hmm. I think one of the strategic flaws of a small church is they complain that they don't have what the other churches have. Right. And so that they have don't have a tendency to be strategic with the one talent that they have been given. Right. And that's what the Lord's going to hold us responsible exactly. for. Exactly. He's not holding us responsible for, for what not you being have. able to do an egg drop out exactly. of a helicopter. Which is awesome if you can do it. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. Yeah. But can you do an can you do an Easter egg hunt? Yes. Yeah, you can do that. Yeah. Um you know, it may not be on 25 acres, but if you've got a, a, a five acre or two acres or a parking lot, it doesn't really matter. It's what are you doing? Are you capitalizing on the strengths that you have at that level? And I think the big issue that we see with this one in particular, the lack of strategy, is this, well, we don't have that, so we can't do this. Right. And so it really becomes back to stewardship. 
Sure. Now, and I think it, it really behooves us. That's an old word. I don't even know where Behoove. that I don't even know where that came from. <laughs> but it, it's it, it's incumbent upon us to often have an outside set of eyes come in and go, "Wow, you know, you have this amazing." thing here. And you go, well, yeah, we've always had that. Well, let's leverage that. So every church has strengths. Small churches always bemoan that they don't have the strengths. Of, it's like humans. Sure. I wish I had your hair, Lennon, you know, yeah. you know in your deep voice. And, and who does that. not? Yeah, who doesn't? But we always want what someone else has. And the limiter for a smaller church tends to be, one of them tends to be, that they just don't capitalize on the resources that they have. Right. Who is someone? Give us a story from the district. Let me throw this. Yeah, sure. Um, Give us a story from the district of somebody who you would really say this this pastor in this town did a great job strategizing with what the Lord had given him. Yeah, I think first first one I think of would be Jonathan Lillian Eustace. Uh, Jonathan pastored a church that was kind of an aging congregation. He had kids in the school. He had family in the school. He had relationships, but he's never leveraged those relationships back. So we, we taught them these concepts about reaching into the community, connecting with stakeholders. Because in a small town, I mean, John John Carabin, Grosbeck is another example. Mm-hmm. I've got hundreds of examples. They have the opportunity to actually walk into the mayor's office. Any of our pastors in Dallas just can't walk into the mayor's office in Dallas. Right. Get on a list. Get on a list. You're not, you're not going to get in the door either. So they have, they have strengths, they have strategies that they can leverage. So Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Lilly, John Carabin at Grossbeck, uh, just go on and on. They began leveraging the strengths of being in a small town, in a small community, and began meeting the needs of the people in that community. And as a result, uh, Jonathan led led the uh, fire chief to Christ, led the police chief to Christ by leveraging the resources that he had. Same with John Carabin. Their churches have grown exponentially by leveraging the strengths of a small community. Everyone knows everybody. Why don't we leverage that? That's great. So there's a lot of examples. Those would just be two very simple ones. That's great. So, okay, lack of strategy. Let's look at number four, which is an unwillingness... An unwillingness to change. I think that's hard on it. Change is hard on everybody. It's particularly hard on congregations that have become kind of sedentary. Let me use an analogy. Um, when my children were really small, they were very flexible. In fact, their bones were flexible. Mm-hmm. So when my baby girl was born, I could I could take her feet and, and kind of play with them. Instead of – you could almost turn them and clap her feet together. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just so, so flexible. The older a church gets, the less flexible, the more inflexible they become. Now, I'm 58. If you tried to do to me what I would do to my daughter when her – you know, you'd break a bone. Sure. Uh, and if you did it to, a, to my grandmother, who's 97, 98, it, it might kill her. So the idea is that over a period of time, the lack of change has created a sedentary uh, rigidity that's often found. And producing and introducing the right amount of change that is strategic versus just chaotic change, you know, changing for the sake of change is really important. So the willingness, the unwillingness to change because the status quo, it's, it's been working. Uh, right. We, you know, we're, we're, our church is good. The thing is that has to be pointed out is that however many people are there, uh, whether that's 37 or 137, wherever on the spectrum, 937, those people are there because they like how it is. Yeah. And so there's, yeah. Some, there's some level of, they're only there because they like how it is. Yeah. And so, of course, yeah. um, they're not necessarily excited or looking for change. But Mike, how does a how does a pastor, if a pastor would say, well, that is my congregation, I would love to see more, and, and they won't 
they won't see it with me. Um, how can a pastor move his people toward change? How can he stir up an appetite and a willingness to to do some things different, to see some things different? Yeah, I, I think one of the one of the strengths that we have as pastors is Teddy Roosevelt would call it a bully pulpit. We have a pulpit. We have the ability to stand in front of people week after week after week. And what we have found is what we preach is what we get. That's true. So by by simply changing the posture of our language, making, talking about change, creating urgency. You see that in the Bible. Jesus meets the guys on on the coast. They've been fishing all day long. They're frustrated. They haven't caught anything. And there's this sense of uh, angst going on there. And he says, well, let me give you a change. Put the net down on the other side of the boat. Would have been very easy. They even say, but Lord, we've been fishing all night. You know, they complain about, you know, listen, we're not rookie fishermen. We've been fishing all night. We know what we're doing. But he says, but at your command, but because you ask us to do it, we'll do it. And this idea of change, you see change all throughout the scripture. In Jesus's words, you've heard it said, but I say to you this. That's right. And so this idea of creating a sense of urgency, uh, any book that you read on change, whether it's Cotter, uh, his book, uh, Leading Change, one of the very first components is you've got to you've got to create a sense of urgency. Uh, we don't move when we see the light; we move when we feel the pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And well, so, as a no pastor, fun. no, no, it's no fun. But as a pastor, we've got to be willing to introduce strategic amounts of change at the right time, at the right place. That there are intersections where change is appropriate, right. and and so we do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I an old story that I heard, which I think is fascinating, that. Um, there's a man who owned an aquarium, and he had an aquarium, and he added a new type of fish to the aquarium, and he added a new fish. The next morning, came back, and the fish was gone. And he looked all around, and he suddenly realized this other fish has eaten this other fish. So he goes back to the, the, the aquarium place where he buys new fish, and he buys a bigger fish, and he puts it back in the same aquarium. Comes back the next morning, the fish is gone. Does this a couple of times. Finally says to the owner of the, of the shop, uh, listen, my fish that I buy is being eaten by the other fish. He goes, yes, it's called territorialism. Hmm. He says, the way you change this is empty everything out of the aquarium, put everything back in a different place, introduce both fish back into it, and there will be no more territorialism and your fish will be able to survive. I think often we think that we've got to change everything in the aquarium to have change. But if we really will just change incrementally at the right time. There are seasons, and those seasons typically are in transitions. Right. And so introducing the right amount of change, preaching about it, uh, begins to produce a, a large amount of change that people can adjust to. Nobody likes it. I mean, nobody likes it. Right. I mean, but the reality is, without change, we're not going to grow. That's true. That's true. Okay. So let's hit, let's recap so far. Lack of scalable yep. care. Inward vision, lack of strategy, unwillingness to change, and then the perennial challenge, whether you are under 200 or you are over 2,000, not enough volunteers, not enough people to do what we feel like the Lord has asked us to do. Yeah. Uh, When I go to weekend consultation at a church of any size, one of the things we'll do is we'll have a large group gathering, and I will ask the question, how many of you serve in more than one ministry? And everyone's hand will go up. And then I'll say, how many of you serve in more than two ministries? 
and the vast majority of people will handle stay up. How many serve in three? And a large percentage, and, and I will go three, four, five, and eventually you begin to realize everyone's looking around and going, wow, those few of us, we are doing everything, and we are completely exhausted. Right. Yes. So you walk in to the congregation week after week after week. When you drop that child off to children's ministry, you see that same face. And over weeks and months, that face gets a little haggard. The joy has kind of gone a little bit. And you think to yourself, I am not going to volunteer here because I don't want to become an indentured slave. It's counterproductive. It's counterproductive, yeah. So the thing that you need the most... Your culture of working everybody, which really kind of goes back, you're really probably trying to do too many things, mm-hmm. you know. So having so few of workers becomes counterproductive. People go, I don't want to serve here. Uh, so if you can come back and, number one, scale things to the need to be, have a strategy that allows you to identify these are the key things we need to do. Mm-hmm. Number four, if we can make the changes that we need to make, scale back on this. Do we really have to do this? Is this necessary? And then reallocate our resources, which typically tends to be people. Right. And if we can get people trained. So in most of our smaller churches below 250 people, there's very little training. Mm-hmm. We just kind of give you a book, a manual, and throw you in the room and say, we'll see you when Jesus comes. Right. You know? Yes. And uh, so having this cycle. So one of the things that we do here that we teach is kind of a – the Scripture talks about a sila, a seasons. Mm-hmm. So we talk about ministry cycles. So most of our churches, we really like to see them during the school year is primarily the growth season for most churches. Right. So for the time the school year starts till this kind of the school year ends, needs to be and can be a ministry cycle where we recruit volunteers to work from September till May, and then we take a summer sila off where we slow down, we reduce the ministries that we're doing to more scalable things. We then train and we recruit and then re-up again. And what you see is as an event of the volunteers because right. they've had a little vacation. Yes. And now they come back to that third grade class. They're excited because they were on the beach someplace and they saw an, they saw a situation happen and now it became a life lesson and they can't wait to come back and teach that lesson at that Sunday school class or mission edge groups or girls right. ministries, whatever it may be. And so there's this invigoration. So mm-hmm. equipping people, which kind of comes back, we come to it again. You begin to see the system of all these things linking together. If I have a lack of volunteers, I just got to preach about discovering your ministry gifts. So you, you know, you just all these things begin linking together to be to kind of form a matrix, if I can use that word. So it's just not the scripture talks about a strand of one cord is easy to break, but when you begin putting the right number of volunteers, the right amount of vision, the right amount of chaos, a new change, it begins to be a matrix that begins to help give you the strength to move the church from. 65 to 200 or 200, whatever the number may be. Right. And I think within every every volunteer opportunity, if it's not, you, you mentioned spiritual gifts that mm-hmm. need to be brought out, ministries. If we can't point out what that is, we probably don't need to be doing it. If it's not kingdom in right. nature, uh, we probably don't need to don't need to be asking people to do it. And really what I'm getting at there is it's sort of our job as a leader to frame the why of this and why is this important? Why does this make Jesus smile? And why does why do we need you to happen? Right. Need you to make this happen? Because you're good at this, because yeah. you're good with people, and because yeah. we need you to be able to reach people. Yeah, I think we can recruit people to large things for a period of time, but where they stay 
and where they find their success is when we focus in on what they're really good at. Mm-hmm. So I have certain strengths that are very, very focused, but I can really do a lot of things for a season. But when I'm not serving in my strengths and, and the things that I'm gifted in, I begin weary. I begin to get a little bit disgruntled. I'm not happy, and it mm-hmm. begins to show up. So there are seasons where I have to recruit people. Listen, I know you don't like kids, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or I know you don't like this, but I need you here for a season. Help me in this for a season until we can identify a person who has those gifts, and yeah. I promise I won't keep you there forever. Yeah, that's great. When we do keep people there forever, they may disappear just to get a break. Absolutely. It may not be that they're upset about anything Correct. else except what you keep saying, they're exhausted, and they think the only way to get a reprieve is to leave yeah. because they keep on getting tapped for yeah somebody moves to our things. church and they go you know pastor we're just going to sit for a while you hear that a you, lot oh, you hear that a lot yeah. yeah you do and it's true mm-hmm. yeah absolutely so not enough volunteers a minimal on the last two here let's begin yeah. to bring it home yeah a minimal or no pro growth attitude yeah i think for me this is a huge one anything that has health grows and in, in fact unhealthy things can grow too Mm-hmm. But <laughs> cancer, yeah, cancer. I mean, a goiter, all kinds of things. Yeah. You know, my waistline. <laughs> you know, all <laughs> things can kind of grow. But yeah. the issue is that uh, churches that kind of break through these barriers, they have a pro-growth attitude. They really believe that the soil is fertile. Mm-hmm. People that don't have a pro-growth attitude, they begin talking about how hard the community is. Right. Uh, they talk about how unfruitful it is. Now, there may be 10 churches around them that are growing, mm-hmm. but but for some reason, their little plot of land that God's given them to be a steward over is hard. Right. And so I think one of the things that we see is that because they have maybe been ineffective with some of the things they project that ineffectiveness over the community yes. and say, the gospel doesn't work as well here. Uh, the churches that have a pro-growth attitude tend to believe in the transformative work of the cross across mm-hmm. the board. Mm-hmm. And I also think that maybe this pro-growth attitude is that we tend to see things as an event rather than a process. Right. And so the churches that have a no-growth attitude, they think because they preached and no one got saved that day that the community's hard, when in reality, the process may be they've just not been planting seed back here in the spring. Right. And they've not been fertilizing, and they've not been working it. So they they tend to be Mm event-oriented versus the process and recognizing that people move through a process and give that process time. So a farmer knows 99.9% of the time, if I plant the seed... If I've prepared the ground, if I have fertilized it, if I've watered it, there will be a harvest. Yes. So staying on that agricultural metaphor, my wife loves to garden. Oh, yeah. So we have a couple of raised beds out in our yard. And uh, last year was not so hot. Yeah. And um, this year is going fantastic. Yeah. Uh, planted the same, planted the same seeds. The difference is we made some additions to the soil. Yeah. Between last year and this year, we added some things that allowed the roots to go down and just things to be more fertile. Yeah. And so you're right, stuff is a process. And that attitude thing, when a pastor is resentful of the soil he's called to till, that becomes pervasive in a church, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really does. It really does. It, it, and it takes the wind out of the sails of your congregation as well, because a pastor multiplies his attitude, Correct. whatever that is, whether that is hopefulness and vision, or if that's discouragement and fear, um, 
it it pervades the whole congregation. You know, uh, the passage of scripture where Paul is before King Agrippa. You know the uh-huh. passage. He's on his way to uh, on his way to Rome, and and King Agrippa, after hears this compelling message by Paul, King Agrippa says these words that we have preached uh, uh, hundreds of times: "Almost thou hast persuaded me." Mm-hmm. And I have heard that preached, and I have preached it my whole life. Paul didn't close the deal. Right. You, you know, mm-hmm. Paul didn't didn't put it just right, and Agrippa Agrippa turned his back on God. Well, maybe the issue was that Agrippa goes. You know, I've never thought of the gospel that way. Mm-hmm. Instead of it being a negative, maybe it's like, wow, you've made me think about things rather differently than I have thought about them in the past. And if you can think of evangelism and growth as a process rather than an event, those King Agrippa moments, you kind of recognize you know, if I can use the Engel scale, you familiar with the Engel scale? I'm not. Uh, Engel was a missionary back in the early 1900s in India, and he recognized that there were large groups of people that would come to faith. And the groups that he was working with that had these large groups of people coming to faith, they didn't view it as an event. They viewed it as a process. So if you think of a continuum, a line, at the zero mark, moving to the left, would be negative one, negative two, negative three, negative four, all the way to negative 13. Now, in my life, I know people who are not just far from God. They're far, far, far from God. Right. They're, they're antagonistic. They're, they're, there's a bitterness. Then I have people in my life that, you know, they're like, yeah, Jesus, I'm not sure about him. But they're not antagonistic. So on the right-hand side of the scale, there would be a plus one, plus two, plus three, all the way to plus 13, which represents spiritual maturity. Ingalls mm-hmm. talked about that churches that were effective at evangelism they did not view it as an event, but they viewed it as a relationship, as a process. Mm-hmm. For example, my, my wife, Rhonda, I met her at Tommy Barnett's pastor school. Took her out for dinner that night and called my parents and said, I've met the person that I'm going to marry. Mm. The person who I did not tell that to was Rhonda. Sure. Because, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's a relationship. Yes. The wedding was an event. But what I wanted was a relationship. Mm-hmm. And when you define salvation as only as an event, then you don't view this moving from King Agrippa. Maybe King Agrippa says, I'm an eight. And Paul, this conversation that we've had, this this moment of revelation, maybe it's moved me to a negative six. Maybe we should be celebrating the posture change. Mm-hmm. And so often this pro-growth attitude, they recognize movements of people. That right. the attitudes change, their conversations change, their posture toward the church and the kingdom changes, and they celebrate that instead of going, "Well, nobody got saved today. Right. Our ground is hard." Right. So that's that. That's the big shift that begins to take place inside the heart and the mind of a pastor and a congregation. They view salvation as an eternal relationship with God that people move through, rather just than an event mm-hmm. at one point in time. And incidentally, that's the mindset it's going to take for a church to engage in discipleship Correct. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe not in Sunday inviting and Correct. for big Easter, like you said, events, but to be engaged with somebody long enough to see them to go from apathy to service in the kingdom yeah. is going to take that process. So let's put a bow on it. We've, yep. we've listed six so far. You normally have 20, but um, let's hit on our bottom line, I think, for today, which is, uh, you say, simply not structured for growth. Yeah. And everything we've talked about can sort of come into structure. into that. It really does. Yeah. And, and structure really is. You know, we love the supernatural and we're Pentecostal groups. And when Jesus fed the 5,000, uh, what you see inside the miracle was structure. 
Mm-hmm. You, if you're not looking for the structure, you don't see it. Right. You just see the miracle. Right. But Jesus actually, someone prepared, the, the little mom prepared the fishes and the loaves. Jesus gathered baskets. He broke, set them down in groups of 50 and 100. What you see there is structure. Mm-hmm. And if we could think of structure as a conduit through which the miraculous flows, mm-hmm. it's our job to create the structure. I can't do the super part, but I can do the natural part. And when I do my part, uh, my, my spiritual mentor, my spiritual father, Dr. Wayne Lee, uh, says that ministry is a divine partnership between God and man. I've got to do my part, and God will do his. And so if I can structure the church through my heart, the way that I preach, by the behaviors that we do, by creating a pathway, by helping people see the definition of salvation as a relationship versus an event. Uh, If I can identify who in my community I'm really best equipped to reach, if I can leverage the stewardship of the resources that God has given me rather than bemoaning that I don't have this, Mm -hmm. but believe that God sent me there with the resources that are there to move me to the next place, if I can structure all of that together, which is a daunting task, I might add. Sure. I mean, it really is. It's a daunting task. But if I can put the conduit there, then throughout Scripture, you just see this divine flow of the supernatural that is attractional to people and transformational at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we want in our pastors and our churches, for them to create a culture where they just see the transformative work of Christ. Right, uh, transforming people that were far from God, like us, people who are far from God, mm-hmm. uh, who now have a, who've bought in, who've who've given heart, soul, body, mind to the mission of Christ. So, pastors listening to this, uh, maybe they're washing dishes on the treadmill, yeah, yeah. driving the bread truck because they're bivocational. Yeah. And uh, what would you say to that man or woman who is listening and thinking, uh, okay, if there's more to this, and getting, I could be part of what Mike is doing, and, and he can help me move my church past this growth barrier. How do they get involved? What does it look like? How long? Give us just sure. information on that. You know, our, our our upcoming 200 barrier starts in September, and we meet eight times over a one calendar year. So we start in okay. September, so we'll meet eight times through the next September. Those typically happen on a Saturday because the groups that we're targeting typically are bivocational, and we want them to bring a team. So we have them on Saturdays so they can bring their team. Those events happen here at our district office, and it's an all-day from about 8.30 till about 4 in the afternoon. And it is a time of prayer, a time of teaching. But more importantly, it's not just content-driven. Uh, one of the biggest changes that we've made in our in our church life cohort process that we t- we've done is we've limited the teaching, and now we have table time. Yeah. So we'll teach for 20, 25 minutes. And then they'll have an hour, an hour and a half of the team working on their church together. That's fantastic. It's huge. It's made yeah, a huge step. Uh, you know, one of the things that we recognize is that not everybody has time and creates space for teamwork. Right. And so when we create that environment, I would think the greatest benefit, this will be our second group that we've run through it. Uh, the first group said the greatest benefit was the team development. Mm-hmm. I finally have gone from being a Lone Ranger kind of a guy who kind of did everything myself. Right. Not that I wanted to, but I just – by default I did. I didn't realize that I had people that were willing to help until I asked them to join me, and they have now bought into 
the vision of the church moving forward as much yeah. as I have. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Well, Mike, thank you. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Yeah, thank you for what you do with church planning and development. So tell you, friends, um, uh, next week, Mike and I are going to talk. We This was very much church development. We're going to hit on church planting. And so we'll do we'll do another episode with six characteristics of a church planner, uh, of a strong church planner. So that'll be great. Uh, tell you, friends, wherever you are, whether you're in Lufkin, Loving, or anywhere else in the North Texas District, or in God's world, really, uh, we love you, and we wish you the best as you spend another week serving Christ and His Bride, the local church. 